So today we're going to be covering uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. This is going to be our lucky number 13 lesson in it. And of course, um, it's bad luck to be superstitious, right? Uh, we, we had Friday the 13th a couple days ago, and we all survived it. We're here. Anyway, you know, one of the, one of the themes that we've seen throughout the book of Mark uh, is Jesus' popularity. And this has just been kind of a, a subtle thing that we've seen, that there were uh, a lot of people that were flocking to Jesus. And that's not something that he's really left for us to, to question. People were coming to him from everywhere, from, from miles and miles away. But we've also seen that while there were a lot of people following, there were multitudes of people following him, many of them, if not most of them, uh, were, were following him for the wrong reasons. Uh, for some, they wanted comfort and, and healing. And that's great. That, that's a good reason to come to Jesus. But if that's all there is, that's, it, it's still the wrong reason if, the, if it doesn't go beyond just seeking some, uh, some temporary comfort. Uh, for others, they followed him for the sake of curiosity. Wow, what's Jesus going to do next? You know, we've seen him do some pretty wild things. Let's stick around, folks, see what happens next. That's, that's why some of the people were following him. Uh, the fact that people were following him for, the, for, for wrong reasons is why he started, a couple chapters ago, he started teaching parables from boats, from a boat, uh, so that people couldn't be pressed up against him, and so that they were actually forced to not only listen to him, but to really think about what he was, was trying to teach them or not. And the parables were the things that he used to separate those who followed him from, uh, for the sake of commitment from those who were following him for the sake of curiosity or comfort. One of the other themes of Mark that we don't want to miss is that even though a lot of these people are, are showing up uh, to just kind of be a spectator rather than a faithful follower, Jesus loves every single one of the people who are following him. There's no question about that. We see that he's had compassion over all of these people who are hurting and who are lost. He's got a heart for them. He feels compassion for them. And I wanted to specifically point this out because if we're as committed to being like Jesus as we're supposed to be, as, as he wants us to be, we'll want to see things from his perspective. We'll want to see things the way he sees things. We'll want to value the things that he values. And Jesus loves the lost. He loves the lost. And we should too. Jesus feels and shows compassion for people who are far away from God, who don't know God. And we should too. We should have compassion for those people too. Now one of the things that we can be sure of when we love and feel compassion for the lost, the way that Jesus loved and felt compassion for the lost is that many times, scratch that, oftentimes, most of the time, it's going to be a one-way relationship. They're not going to feel the compassion that we have. They're not going to understand the compassion that we have for them. The love that we feel for others won't be reciprocated. It just won't. And that hurts, right? I mean, have you ever, have you ever loved somebody who didn't love you back? Or have you ever questioned whether a loved one loved you? Man, that hurts. It really hurts, like deep, deep, deep down inside. It causes intense heartache. And yet what we're going to see today as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark is that this unreciprocated love is not only a reality, but it's something that might even be the norm. Now Jesus has been carrying out his public ministry for 
roughly a year up to this point, roughly a year, according to the best guesses of uh, most scholars and theologians and commentators. And I say best guess because none of the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of them even try to establish any sort of time frame in their narratives. We can just kind of guess at at how much time elapses. Uh, Apparently, that wasn't important to them to establish a time frame, but we do know with a high degree of certainty that up until this point, Jesus has been doing his ministry out of Capernaum, uh, living with Peter and Andrew's families. And as Jesus has been in Capernaum, there's only been one interaction that he's had with his own family. They lived about 20 miles away. Uh, They're in Nazareth, right? Jesus is in Capernaum. That's about a 20-mile trip, and it's not an easy trip either. Um, But they, they show up in Capernaum, and they're trying to pull Jesus away from his ministry. They're trying to pull him away from the work that he's doing because they thought that he had lost his mind. They thought that he was going crazy. And that was an interaction that ended, chapter 3, that was an interaction that ended with Jesus pointing out that he's got tighter bonds and more interest in those who are committed to being submitted to God than he does with his own blood relatives. He's more interested in the people who are committed to being submitted to God. Now, for the most part, up until now, we've seen Mark really working to help us understand the authority of Jesus. And Mark has been kind of developing this theme of Jesus being the, the, the ruler. He, he's a ruler. He's a servant who came to rule. But with that much said, from this point forward, this is a turning point in our text. And so what we're going to see is Mark putting forth an effort to establish Jesus not only as the ruler, the servant who came to rule, but as the ruler who came to serve. And that's going to start with Jesus going home making the 20-mile trip back to Nazareth, back home. So we pick it up in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, where we read, Jesus went out from there. Where's there? Capernaum, right, Capernaum. And came into his hometown, Nazareth, right? And his disciples followed him. Now, the first thing that kind of struck me here is that Mark doesn't say he went out from Capernaum and came into Nazareth. I think he's trying to remind us here that this is Jesus' hometown. So instead of saying Jesus went to Nazareth, he's trying to drive home the point, hey, remember that this is a significant place for Jesus. This is an intentional move on Mark's part. He wants to make sure that we see that Jesus is going back to the people who are extremely familiar with him. These are the people that he grew up around. These are the people who were his neighbors. They were friends of his family. They probably went to the synagogue together. These are people who have known him for like 30 years. These are the people who have known him longer than anybody else has. Now, given that much, we would expect that they would be excited for Jesus to show up. They'd be excited to to see Jesus come back, and so they'd welcome him. They know what he's been doing, right? They know that he's had this ministry in Capernaum. Word has spread. That's how his family knew to go, you know, take the 20-mile trip uh, to Capernaum to try and get him because word had spread. Everybody knew what Jesus was doing. Now, Mark tells us that Jesus' disciples followed him. Uh, Remember that in the previous passage, Jesus had only allowed Peter, James, and John to accompany him to Jairus' house where he was going to, uh, to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, healing her completely. But now all of his 
disciples are following him. And that undoubtedly includes the 12, but we've, we've actually seen that he's got a lot more disciples than just the 12. The 12 are, are special. They have a, a more intimate relationship with Jesus, but he's got a lot of disciples. We don't know exactly how many. So Mark tells us that his disciples followed him. We don't know how many, but there are a lot of people who are showing up here in a small town. Are they welcome? Let's continue. Mark chapter 6, verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Now this is, we want to we make note of this. This is the first time that Jesus has taught in the synagogue in Nazareth. The people there were probably, because they've known him for so long, they were probably familiar with the fact that uh, you know, he's got this incredible ability to comprehend and teach the scriptures. If you remember, you know, uh, when he was 12 years old, he was at the synagogue teaching the teachers, right? So, so they probably knew about that, but maybe they had never actually heard him themselves. So this is the first time that they're really hearing him teach. And the reaction of the people is actually very similar to the reaction of the people in Capernaum, the first time they heard Jesus teach, back in chapter 1. They're astonished, right? They, they can't believe what they're seeing and hearing. In fact, they're so astonished, they're asking each other, where did Jesus pick up all this wisdom? How did he get so smart? How did he get so wise? And who gave him the ability to perform all of these miracles. And they're bringing up these types of questions right in the middle of Jesus' teaching. Before he's even done teaching, they're asking themselves these questions. In other words, they're in such shock, such disarray, that they're actually interrupting him so that they can, they can kind of get their bearings. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Where, where did he get this from? So they're not only astonished by him, but they're immediately astonished by him. It's not like they're reflecting back and saying, wow, you know, that, that was a pretty good point he was making. No, they're immediately astonished by him. Now, Mark has drawn our attention to the fact that the people are astonished, but what we're about to see is that Jesus isn't really too concerned about whether or not we're astonished with him. That's really something that doesn't matter all that much to him. He's, he's interested in doing more than just catching our attention. If, if all he does is get our astonishment it's, it's, not, it's mission failed. He wants faith. He wants a response beyond just astonishment. And that was what separated Jairus from the people who had come to Jesus, right? That's what separated the hemorrhaging woman, the woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. That's what separated her from the others who were touching him. Faith. Faith. But a lot of people have been astonished by Jesus up to this point. We've seen a lot of people, even the Pharisees, were astonished by Jesus but they haven't responded by putting their faith in him or in completely submitting to him. Jesus isn't interested in us just being astonished in him. Let's continue. Verse 3. The people continue here saying, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
What we need to notice here is that this astonishment, that the astonishment that they're feeling isn't focused, their astonishment isn't on the, the truthfulness of the things that he's saying. They're not like, wow, that, that was such a great point. I've never seen it that way. No, their astonishment is focused on the person who's teaching, not on what's being said. It's, it's focused on the person who's teaching and where he possibly could have picked all of this stuff up. They're looking at the family of Jesus. They, they start looking for answers. Where did he get these things from? Hmm, well, let's look at his family. And so they start looking at his family, and in a condescending way, they're basically saying, well, he obviously didn't get it from them. Nice. The implication of their words is that there's nothing wise, nothing exceptional about the family of Jesus. So their conclusion is that Jesus is just this He's just a carpenter. He's the guy, you know, he's the guy who built that table for the guy down the street. He's the guy who, you know, did all this woodwork for, you know, this guy over here. He's just a carpenter. A common guy who's no different and no better and no wiser than just the average person. See, what we should notice here is that they're not acknowledging Jesus himself as the source of either the teachings or the miracles. They're asking, where did he get these from? Because they obviously didn't just come from him, is what they're thinking. So their question is, who had given these things to him? As if he was teaching something that was, you know, the intellectual equivalent of, of, uh, you know, regurgitated cud. You know, that's that's basically what they're accusing him of doing. And as if his hands uh, weren't performing the miracles themselves, but as if the miracles are working with his hands, that the miracles are, you know, some source beyond him, not in him. Now, Mark ended the previous chapter, chapter 5, uh, by giving us two examples of immense faith. These two tremendously faithful people, right? Jairus and the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. And this is contrasting with that. Their great faith, the great faith of Jairus and the hemorrhaging woman, is being contrasted with the people in his, own ta- in his own town, the faithlessness that they have, the disbelief that they have. And it's because of their disbelief that the people in Jesus' hometown, as, as astonished as they might be, they have no idea what to make of his teachings, his wisdom, his miracles. It, it, this is something that's right in front of their eyes, it's something that they're listening to right there. And it should be clear as day to them. But they're blinded. By disbelief, which makes what they're witnessing unexplainable to them. They can't make any sense of it because of their spiritual blindness. And after all is considered, after all is said and done, what started out with astonishment ends with anger. Their ultimate response is to be offended by him. They're offended by these things. This common man thinks he can teach me something? Come on now. They're offended. See, the point of all this is that sometimes it doesn't matter what we do. Sometimes it doesn't matter how persuasive our arguments might be. People will often be offended rather than persuaded by evidence that forces them to acknowledge their personal inability to save themselves. That's offensive to people. That's why the gospel is offensive. This is like a drowning man being offended when you throw him a personal flotation device. You know, one of those lifesaver-looking things. You throw it out to him. 
What are you doing throwing that to me? Can you imagine how silly that would be? This is the equivalent. That's what's going on. They're offended at him trying to save them. Just like the people in Jesus' hometown don't see him as the source of these teachings and these miracles that he's doing, people today see the good things that the church has done. The church has done a lot of good things through the ages. Orphanages. The church has set up more orphanages than any other institution in the history of the world. Public education. Yeah, the church established that too. Hospitals. All kinds of charities. Feeding the poor. You name it. The church has started all these good things. And what the people of the world today will do is they'll look at these things through the centuries and they'll say, that's just philanthropy. That's just common philanthropy. Instead, they'll focus on the failures of the church. The hypocrisy that makes news, headlines, right? The wars, you know, the the crusades. We've all heard about those things. The witch hunts. They focus on the failures of the church, the failures of church leaders who were overcome by lust for sex and power. And they'll conclude that this is all just a bunch of fictitious garbage based on ancient myths. Has the church ever failed? Yeah. Things we just named. Occasionally, throughout history, the church has morally failed. No question about it. We don't, we don't deny that. But anytime our focus is on anything other than showing the love and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus and using those things to earn the respect and the attention of the lost so that they can hear the gospel, anytime we lose that focus, that focus we're, we're bound to fail and to fail miserably and to fall into immoral actions. History does attest to the church's failures on one hand, but to the church's faithfulness on the other. And let's not even start this conversation until we first establish the fact that what the church has done over the last 2,000 years, since Jesus ascended to heaven, all the deaths that the church is responsible for pale in comparison to what atheism has done in just the last 112 years. It's 2012 Since 1900, over 300 million deaths can be traced back to atheist regimes. 300 million. There's not even a comparison. If you want to talk about morality and and all that stuff, the church has not failed in comparison. It's not even close. Not even in the same ballpark. Uh, I, I was recently having a conversation with an unbeliever, and we were talking about the Ark of the Covenant, of all things. Uh, it started with, you know, talking about Indiana Jones and it led into a discussion about the Ark of the Covenant. Great, I thought, you know. And his argument was that God's people basically viewed the Ark of the Covenant as a weapon of mass destruction uh, that they would use to justify slaughtering innocent people. He's, he's, he's got a point to an extent. Let, let's, let's give him credit. He does have a point to an extent. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see the nation of Israel going into battle with the Philistines and being slaughtered. It, it wasn't even close. And so the elders of Israel uh, come together in verse 3, and they, say, uh, and they say, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant out to the battlefield. And what happens? They've got this mentality, man. We're bringing out the guns. 
This is our weapon of mass destruction. And what happens? They get destroyed. They get slaughtered worse than they did before. Because what they were doing is they were, they were looking at the Ark of the Covenant as something of, of a good luck charm. Kind of like, you know, okay, we're going to, you know, make a cross and, you know, we'll say our, our Hail Marys and then we'll be good to go, right? No, that's not what God wants. That's not how God works. This wasn't a weapon of mass destruction. These faithless people were mistaking it for something that it wasn't. And not only were they slaughtered, but the, the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant from them in that battle. See, the, the people of Israel had mistaken the Ark of the Covenant for something that it wasn't. It was a move that wasn't all that dissimilar from the failures which have blemished the church through the ages, through history, as a result of faithlessness. Those people were faithless? Yeah, but sometimes God's people are faithless and, and do stupid things and immoral things. In faithlessness, not in faithfulness. And this is how I responded to my friend in that conversation, you know, by, by pointing this stuff out. Hey, here's an example. This was not a weapon of mass destruction. This was these people acting out of faithlessness. Did he convert? Did he even change his mind? I don't know. I, I really don't know. But I did put a pebble in his shoe, so to speak. And that's what Jesus did with the people of Nazareth. He put a proverbial pebble in their shoe. He gave them something that would cause them to either stop or stumble. People don't want to stop, and people don't like to stumble. People like to go on their own way. See, if, if you have a pebble in your shoe, you have two choices that you can make, right? You can accept the reality that the pebble is in there, take your shoe off and get the pebble out, or you can let it remain in your shoe and just be mad about the fact that it's there. It's going to hurt. Every step, you're going to be offended by it, right? When I went off to seminary to, uh, to study philosophy and, and study apologetics, uh, I thought that I was going to learn all these formulaic arguments, for lack of a better term, uh, that would win people over for Jesus. If I, if I was only uh, argumentatively persuasive enough, of course they would believe in Jesus, Right? Or so I thought until I actually started engaging uh, in conversations with atheists and unbelievers, countering their arguments, every argument they had, and finding that their reaction wasn't to accept Jesus, but to come up with theories that are just ridiculous, more, uh, more ridiculous, more outlandish than, you know, find the most unrealistic scene in a, in a science fiction movie you've ever, you've ever seen. It was more ridiculous than that. And that was when I, you know, I started to see the power of spiritual blindness. Doesn't matter how persuasive your arguments are. That was when I started to see that Jesus meant it when he said that nobody can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws that person to Jesus. That's from John chapter 6, verse 44. But hold on, that's not, that's not the end of the equation. That doesn't mean that everyone who's drawn to Jesus comes to him. It just says that you can't come to Jesus unless you're drawn. It doesn't say anything about whether people respond or not. Now, I believe that everyone is drawn at some point because I also think that Jesus was really serious when he said that if he would be lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. That's John chapter 12, verse 32. So again, that doesn't mean that everyone who's drawn will respond, but everyone is given light. Everyone's given a chance 
to respond. And here's the thing. The same sun that melts wax will also harden clay. The same sun that melts wax will also harden clay. And what we're seeing is Jesus is ministering in his hometown and to people who knew him, who grew up knowing and loving, and Jesus loved these people. What he sees is a lot of clay, a lot of hardened hearts, a lot of people who might be astonished, but they won't take a serious look at what's in front of them. They won't take a serious look at the evidence. Instead, they're just offended when they're confronted by it. And Mark's showing us that when people, he's showing us that people get ensnared by disbelief and this contrast that he's making between the faithfulness of the people in the previous chapter and the faithlessness here, the reason he's making this contrast is to prevent us from falling into the same snare. So how does Jesus respond? Verses 4 to 6. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor in his hometown and among his own relatives and in, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. So Jesus is disgusted. He's, he's hurt by the reaction of the people. And he reacts by doing four things, Mark tells us. First, he publicly rebukes them. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Now, maybe it's because I was raised by an English professor and you know I, I grew up speaking perfect grammatical English. And so I'm probably the only one here who, who has this problem. But when I read what Jesus says, I first realize that there's a double negative here, not without. Uh, it, you know what a double negative is, right? It's, um, you know, if, if a person says, I don't have no money, well, if you have no money, it means you're broke. So if you have, if you don't have no money, it means you have money. It's a, it's a double negative. So when I read what Jesus says here, I, I need to first cross out the, the double negatives in my mind because two negatives equals a positive. Uh, and second, I think to myself, man, I, I've got to get a life if I have to <laughs> stop every time I come across a double negative. Um, <laughs> like I said, it's probably only me. Uh, but Jesus says that a prophet is not without honor. Well, Jesus is not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. But his point here is that if a prophet deserves honor in his hometown, and they do, if, if, but if, if that's true, how much more should Jesus be honored? Prophets don't perform these incredible miracles. Prophets don't die for your sins. But Jesus does. He does more than just a prophet, but he is a prophet. So the first reaction of Jesus is to point out that of all places, you would think that these people who have known him, and they've known his family for years and years, would be proud of him and honor him by at least giving him some dignity and respect, at least taking the time to listen to what he's saying and look at what he's doing and responding by being more than just astonished, but by being faithful. Responding in faith. And of course, some eventually would. We know that Mary does. Mary becomes a follower of Jesus. Right? Eventually. We know that, uh, that James does. He becomes a, a significant figure in the early church. Jude does. He, he writes the book of Jude. But for now, he realizes, Jesus realizes that he's received none of the honor, 
none of the respect, none of the dignity that he rightfully deserves from these people. And so the first thing he does is rebuke them. Second thing he does, second thing Mark tells us happens is that Jesus isn't able to perform any miracles there aside from laying his hands on a few sick people and healing them. Now, this is a little bit confusing, if we're being honest, because there's a contradiction here. First, Mark tells us that he could do miracles, but then he says, except, or that, that he could do no miracles, but then he says, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So obviously, uh, we know that Jesus did perform some miracles here. He laid his hands on people, uh, but then he's saying he, he couldn't do any miracles. And I think the point that Mark's trying to make here is that uh, some of the other miracles that Jesus had performed up to this point, stilling the sea, driving the unclean spirits out of, uh, out of people, these are all miracles that make the things that he's doing here pale in comparison. What we need to understand that it wasn't Jesus' ability to perform these miracles that was restricted. It's not like his hands are tied and he, he's up there, he, he's like a magician who's in front of a crowd and, uh, you know, the, the rabbit falls out of the bottom of the hat um, before he, you know, tries to pull the rabbit out of the top of the hat. No, that's not what's going on here. Instead, we need to understand that Jesus refused to be a circus act for the home crowd because they weren't going to recognize what he was doing anyway. It didn't matter how great the miracles were. It was all going to be for nothing. It was a circus act for them. Now let's stick with that magician illustration for, for one more second here. Let's imagine that you're a magician. And, and you, can all, you can do all these amazing things. You know how to do the illusion where you can you know, cut a person in half. Uh, you know how to do the illusion where you can make things float across the room. In fact, I know exactly how that's done. And, and I'm going I'm to show you guys how this works. So the first step that I, that I need you guys to do, I need everybody to close your eyes. Close your eyes tight. Every eye closed? All right. Okay, go ahead and open your eyes. See, what, what I did is I, I actually floated around the room while you guys closed your eyes. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? Pretty impressive. That's how it's done. No, see, see, nobody saw me do anything here because your eyes were closed, right? Even, even if I had really done that, and I, you know, of course I didn't, you wouldn't have seen it because your eyes were closed. And this is what it would be like to perform a, a magic act in front of a room of blind people. Can you, be, can you imagine being a magician trying to perform for blind people? You'd go out of business fast. They wouldn't believe you. You tell them, hey, by the way, just so you know what I'm doing, I'm cutting somebody in half. <laughs> Are they going to believe you? Of course not. Of course not. But see, that's exactly why Jesus wouldn't perform any miracles here. Spiritual eyes were closed. Catch that? See, what that? see how that works? Jesus knows that if he performed any miracles, the people wouldn't even see it because they're spiritually blind. And he's not, a, he's not a magician who, who uh, performs for the blind. He's the God of the universe. He's the God of the universe. And he seeks to fuel our faith in him. That was the purpose of miracles, to advance the kingdom. If it's not going to advance the kingdom because the people are spiritually blind, he's not going to waste his time. If our own spiritual blindness is going to prevent us from seeing the significance of his work, he'd be wasting his time and energy. By doing anything. That would be the equivalent of trying to pour gasoline into a vehicle that has no engine and no wheels. Can you imagine doing that? Don, you're the engineer here. If you poured gasoline into a car with no engine and no wheels, would it go anywhere? 
Come on. And that's why Jesus wasn't doing miracles. See, for Mark, there's this emphasis on the fact that only those who have faith are able to experience God's power and God's presence. In Mark's gospel, the reason that Jesus performed any miracles at all was for the sake of furthering the establishment of the kingdom of God. It wasn't for entertainment. He wasn't a circus act. It wasn't for the sake of convincing the spiritually hard-hearted who had made up their minds and weren't going to open their spiritual eyes. So first, Jesus rebuked them. Secondly, he limited his miracles. He did some. Those who actually did come forward, who were sick, he healed them. He limited his miracles. Third, Mark tells us, he wondered at their disbelief. From time to time, uh, if you guys have been listening to me long enough, you'll know, you'll know that there are times when I don't agree with the way something is, is translated, uh, when the, the translation from Greek to English somehow misses the mark, and I think this might be one of those cases. Um, I, I don't think Jesus is sitting there just wondering. Um, you know, I, I wonder about a lot of things. I, I wonder uh, how long it'll be until Jesus returns. I, you know, I wonder uh, what my kids will be when they grow up. Uh, I wonder what this church will look like in 10 years. I wonder a lot of things, right? And that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not sitting there thinking, hmm, I wonder why they don't believe. I wonder what I have to do to get these people to believe. No, that's not what Jesus is doing here. No, the, the Greek word that gets translated uh, as, as wondered here uh, gets translated more frequently as marveled. Marveled. And I think that gets the, the meaning across a little bit better. That gives us a stronger image of what's going on here, doesn't it? That tells us that there's an element of astonishment on Jesus' behalf that he's feeling. Do you catch that? First, they were astonished at the things that he was saying and doing, and Jesus ends up in astonishment at them for their reaction, for their disbelief. He's as much at a loss for words, as much at a loss for explanation for their lack of faith as they were at what he was doing and saying in the beginning. And this is the same Greek word that Mark will use to describe Pilate's reaction when Jesus refuses to speak a word in his defense. What we'll see when we get there is that Mark tells us that Pilate was amazed. Jesus is amazed at the fact that he's saying these things and doing these things. And the people are saying, la, 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 I can't hear you. And they're closing their eyes. I can't see you. He's amazed. In the face of such incredible belief, Jesus' reaction is, are you kidding me? Really? Seriously? For reals? Let me ask you, if Jesus showed up here today, what kind of reaction would, would we get if he looked into the depths of your heart? Would he be amazed? I mean, I, I can't answer that question. Only you can answer that question. But Jesus sees, sees right through the outward appearances and he looks upon the depths of a person's heart. Would he be astonished at what he sees in your heart, in the depths of your heart, the way he's astonished at the people of Nazareth? Or would he see the incredible faith and say, wow, that's an opportunity for me to do something to add fuel to that engine with tires? We know that Jesus doesn't always need for a person to have faith in order for him to do something. Look at Paul. He was faithless, right? 
But Jesus performed an amazing work on him anyway, and the response was Paul's faith. Same as the man who was possessed uh, last chapter, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. The man who was possessed by all the unclean spirits, the legion of unclean spirits. He didn't have faith, but Jesus worked on him anyway. Both of those circumstances, even though there was no faith in the recipients of his work, the, the, the result was advancing the kingdom of God. So where the kingdom of God will advance, Jesus will work, faith or not. Jesus usually works in coordination with faith, however, because he wants our faith to be part of the process. See, in the Bible, a lack of faith is a mindset of utter and complete rebellion against God. It's a stubbornness that refuses to surrender, refuses to believe, no matter what. And that's what we see here. That's what is amazing Jesus, and and amazing him in a bad way, I might add. He knows that it's not an intellectual problem for them. They understand exactly what he's saying. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's a moral problem. They're, just, they're digging their heels in, so to speak, and refusing to budge. And the contrast between this humble, lowly carpenter and the supernatural prophet, and then some, was just a contrast that they didn't want to resolve. It's not something that they wanted to waste brain power on. And it's not that they couldn't. It's that they wouldn't. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Does does my lack of faith prevent me from truly, truly seeing and hearing Jesus? Or are you like one of the few? One of the few who came to him. A few were healed. A few who were humbled by their needs did step forward and come to Jesus for healing. And out of his great compassion, of course he healed them. Few are willing to come to accept that type of humility. But that type of humility is what we need if we're going to come to Jesus. Disbelief will just rob us of the opportunity of recognizing and experiencing the power and the presence of of the kingdom of God operating in our lives. We won't even see it, even if it happens, if we're stuck in disbelief. The final thing that Mark tells us that Jesus does is he moves on. Jesus moves on. He goes to other villages. He knows he's been rejected, but he knows that he has planted some seeds. And he's aware of the fact that for now, there's really nothing more that he can accomplish by sticking around, other than increasing the offense against, against him, the, the offense that the people are feeling against him. So the final thing he does in response to the rejection of the people in Nazareth is he moves on to other places, other villages. See, in this, in this narrative, what we see really is just a, a glimpse, just the slightest glimpse of Jesus' heart breaking for lost people. He's hurt that they're offended. He's sad that they're offended. It breaks his heart. We've seen that he has authority over all of these things through the book of Mark. His authority is is not limited. He can do whatever he wants. Nothing can stand in his way. And yet the same people, the same same Jesus who causes this, this storm that was scaring even the most experienced fishermen, 
the same Jesus doesn't get the response of people softening their hearts to believe. Do you see that this kind of hard-heartedness, the spiritual blindness, is a more horrific, more terrifying thing than a storm that can scare even the most experienced fishermen? Disbelief is scarier than that. The lesson here is really twofold. First, remember that Jesus was teaching about sowing kingdom seeds back in chapter 3. And since then, he's kind of been illustrating that. Are we losing lights here? The screen went out. Okay, that's what I'm, that's what I'm catching. <laughs> I'm like, did the power just go out? And I'm, okay. <laughs> so the, the first lesson here is that we need to sow kingdom seeds abundantly even in places where we are facing hard-hearted rejection, even in places where there is spiritual blindness, we still need to sow abundantly. I was listening to a well-known pastor this week, John Piper, for anyone who's interested. If you guys know who John Piper is, I like John Piper. I was listening to him, and he was talking about how much we love the prosperity gospel. You know, the false gospel that God created us to be champions who live in victory and we never have a bad day and there's always a smile on our face and we never experience disappointment or rejection or poverty or sickness. You know what I'm talking about? That's not John Piper's view, but he's saying we love that view. We love the prosperity gospel His point was that we get mad when we face all those things. Rejection, disappointment, sickness, poverty. And oftentimes, there's at least a tendency in us to say, God, what what are you doing here? No, we, we like prosperity. We're more comfortable with prosperity. But the fact is that if you're being faithful to God, you know exactly what Jesus was feeling like when he was rejected by these people that he loved. And yet, there he was, sowing seeds of the kingdom among them, knowing that this was just a lot of rocky ground. This was a lot of rocky soil and and shallow soil in the people here in Nazareth. But here's the thing. Rejection is not an excuse not to sow. Rejection is not an excuse not to sow. Maybe... An equally important or maybe more important lesson here is the realization that we need to be open to expecting Jesus to do great works in our midst, not limiting him by our expectation. Oh, you know, I know that he used to do all these things, but he, 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 wouldn't, he wouldn't bless me that way. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't do anything in my life. How much do we believe that Jesus can accomplish for his kingdom through us, through us and in our midst. How much do we think he can do? See, the townspeople wanted, wanted Jesus to fit in this, this neat little tight box that they understood him to be in, but Jesus is always wanting to demonstrate that he's bigger and greater than any box we can possibly conceive of. We've already seen it. We've already seen it through the book of Mark. Jesus can do the miraculous in the midst of those who are completely surrendered in obedience to his lordship. And so this is really just a call for us to not just blatantly live out our faith in Jesus, 
but to continue increasing in that faithfulness and in our expectations of what he can do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a warm place, a warm and dry place to study your word today. And we thank you that you pulled us all out of faithlessness. You pulled us all out of a place of rebellion. You gave us light. And Lord, we we thank you for that. We know that your love for us is something that's bigger than we can even imagine, something that we can't even wrap our minds around. And we see, Lord, the hurt that you have for the lost, the compassion that you have for the lost, and the hurt that you're feeling when they don't respond. And I pray, God, that you would give us Jesus' heart here, that we would love the lost, that we would feel compassion for those who don't know you, that we would reach out to them despite their unbelief, that we would be the light that draws them to you. You've asked us to be the light in this world, God. Teach us to do that better. Teach us to be faithful when it's so much easier to be faithless. Teach us to grow through the study of your word and through the leading of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me Springtime, open in bloom. Is that moment the sun breaks?